The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to The Makers of Minnesota, where we talk to a podcast where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And I'm excited today to talk to Dan Oski. He's got Tattersall Distilling. And how many years has it been? Has it been like eight? No, it's been three and a half. Oh, it has not. Yeah, we uh, we opened to the oh, public. Oh, wow. So it'll be four years for us uh, from when we essentially incorporated like right now. Um, and then we opened to the public in July of 2015. Okay, that is super weird. And I really feel like you're like father time and you've been doing this forever. I mean, it feels like <laughs> it feels like eight years. I might I might look eight years older. You know, that's I possible. mean, wow. Because, okay, so Tattersall Distilling, I think of you as like one of the founders of the craft distilling movement. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a huge compliment. Um, there were about a dozen before us, um, other distilleries, and uh, we're very close with, with all of them. Um, there's a distillery guild, and so um, I would say now there's another probably dozen or so. It's, it's about doubled since we started. Okay, and do you feel like there's still room in the marketplace for more? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that you ha- it's, it's trickier now. You have to be making... Um, something perhaps more unique. Um, I think that uh, if you're making just vodka and gin, it's going to be really, really tough. I mean, it's going to be tough to get your products in stores because there's so many vodkas out there right now and and gin too. Um, And so I think, you know, a lot of people, the goal is to lay down barrels and make whiskey, but you have to pay the bills. And so, you know, to do that, a lot of times it's the quicker turnaround products are going to be vodka gin and some of the more clear spirits and liqueurs. And then um, some of the brown spirits come later, some of the more specialty liqueurs, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, essentially it took us three years to launch our first brown spirit, which was uh, earlier this year. And then... Um, I loved, I, I had an opportunity to go like and look in the barrel, the cask. Yeah. Is yeah. it The, the barrel big, room, yeah. Yeah, and it was just, it was very exciting. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, we laid down about 350 barrels this year in 2018 as we kind of come to a close on 2018. Um, so we've definitely ramped up production. We'll continue to do so. Uh, we actually just um, we doubled the size of our mash cooker um, in 2017, but we we're, I guess John, my business partner, is smart enough to keep the old mash cooker around and not sell it. Uh, so we just connected that, hooked that up about um, two weeks ago. So now we're making a lot more whiskey. Let's go back to the beginning of time. So you were, I came across you, you were like a bartender extraordinaire. Yeah, I was a bartender. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that's, it's kind of been the one constant in my life since college. I've been bartending since college. I, I took a, a, about a year and a half hiatus. Um, and then uh, I moved back to Minnesota in the kind of mid 2000s. And I started bartending again in 2005 in Minneapolis. And um, 
when I met you, I think you were at the strip club. Is that right? Yeah, strip club eating fish. I was there for seven years. And you were you'd made um, bitters. Yeah, we did. Um, so um, when we opened up the strip club, kind of to match what JD Frotsky was doing in the kitchen, because JD, you know, was this farm to table movement, which a lot of times people, you know, that was two thousand eight, January fifteenth of two thousand eight. Um, but you know, Omnivore's Dilemma had kind of just come out. Yeah, and, Michael Pollan's book about eating farm to table and right, and that whole farm to table movement was actually, even though you see it all over now, it was very new then. So JD, you know, everything made from scratch in the kitchen. Um, we wanted to do the same thing with the bar, and so we had to learn how to make bitters and homemade tonics, and we were bottle fermenting ginger beers, and basically everything behind the bar was was made from scratch, and you know, a lot of uh, just kind of recipe development. Um, for me, then in twenty no two thousand ten, it was um, some gentleman hit me up, and we created Joya Soda. Yes, and then it was a couple years later that. Um, I had created this, uh, this bitters kit that was being sold in uh, one liquor store right around the Christmas time of 2012. And it was, uh, I mean, it looked like it was in a basket with like, you know, the bird's nest like filling and yep. it, it just, and we covered it with like cellophane and what you got out of it was cool, but it, the packaging was not great. And we kind of dissolved it after the holidays. And then Eric Eastman hit me up in uh, a couple months later and he'd bought a couple of kits. He wanted to make some more. And so... He and I created uh, the Ezianoski um, kind of basically brew kit for making your own yep. bitters, and that still exists. Um, I'm no longer part of that, so uh, it's it's Easy and Company now. And um, Joya Soda, we actually uh, sold that earlier this year too. Yep. And then, so what made you like? And did you? How did you and John connect? Because you guys have a lot of yin and yang. That's perfect. Yeah. Well, I've known John since I was seven. Okay. Um, I've known John since second grade. He was the new kid in school. Um, Is it Kreidler? Is that how you yeah, say his last Kreidler. name? Okay. Yeah. So John and I grew up together, and we've been friends basically, you know, over thirty years at this point. And um, he was in banking, and I was in the industry. And he and I sat down. I had just left the strip club. Yeah. And I was going to go help Burke and Christina open up Ola Repa in South Minneapolis. Yep. And um, John hit me up. Basically, a couple of days before we opened, it was like, hey, can got time for a beer? And we grabbed a beer across the street, and he kind of asked me what I knew about the distilling industry. I thought I was just kind of be giving him some, some advice and, you know, maybe some products he should think about making. And then he was like, well, you know, do you want to be my business partner? And I was didn't even hesitate. I'm like, absolutely, let's do it. And yeah. So, and um, at that point, you'd already done a couple businesses, right? Yeah. And, I mean, and John's an insanely brilliant business mind and there was I would have been stupid to say no um, but it's also the 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 kind of fact that you grew up with somebody and he and I can he and I can basically have a conversation without really saying anything yeah I've seen it yeah I mean you, you communicate <laughs> in such a cool way um, and he and I definitely I mean we have our totally different strengths and so I mean some things are clearly John questions and some things are clearly Dan questions and so um, it is like that perfect yin and yang. So when you sat down, did you decide like, okay, we're 50-50 and we're each going to put in this amount of money and how much money did you each start out with? Yeah. I mean, so we, John, I'll, I'll be totally honest, John put down more money than me. I, you know, a lot of times that is the way yeah, it goes. We are 50-50. Um, we then decided to raise a lot of the money. Him being a banker, we raised a lot of the money, uh, most of it uh, through banks. 
Um, he's, Tell me about that. You just went and got small business loans, and yeah, um, a few different loans. Uh, we would, I mean, sometimes we would go into the bank, and I would just be like, "John, you cannot talk to these. You can't talk to them this way." And you know, it was it was funny because you know he had already written a business plan basically at our first meeting. He had yep. already a business plan, five year projections, everything um, written out. And um, so when we sat down at in the banks, he was just very hard negotiator. Um, we ended up getting a great loan from Pioneer Bank out of, uh, out of Mankato. It was the biggest, it was the biggest uh, loan. And then we got like, you know, an SBA. Yep. And um, then we did also raise some uh, private capital too. Um, did you have to like put, did you, I, I'm assuming you had a house. I don't know. Did you have to put up like collateral? Yeah. We had to put up, I mean, everything. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's so ironic though, if you think about it, like, Okay, so we, as a small business people, like wrote the business plan, we had our projections, and you really spent all this time making this solid case, right, to these bankers. And then they look at you and they're like, well, yeah, okay, and we'll take your house like as collateral and these other things as collateral. And it's like, well, if I wanted to sign away my house to you, I wouldn't have needed to come here. I could have gotten a home equity loan. It's just, it's crazy. I think with like distilling and brewing, at least at that time, um, the equipment being that it doesn't depreciate very right. much. You're like, okay, the equipment is kind of the big piece of this pie. And so that was uh, that was a big thing. And then we also, you know, the laws, that it was a tricky time because, you know, we started talking in, uh, it was the first time we talked about it was April of 2014. Yeah. And he and I basically would meet, you know, once, twice, even three times a week to, you know, work on business plan and figure out, um, basically the direction we want to go, what products do we make? Um, and then we were watching legislation. Legislation was changing too. And what happened in September of that year is a law changed saying that you could have a cocktail room in right. your distillery. At that point, we kind of, we, we, we were hoping it would go that way. You don't know it's going to go that sure. way. But at that point, we more or less kind of took a quick U-turn and just kind of rewrote the business plan a little bit and then also like the the space had to change essentially. I mean, we were originally looking at a 5,000 square foot space. You know, we were just going to be a production space with right. maybe, you know, a little tasting area. Um, and then um, the game changed completely, allowing us to have a bar in there. And, you know, having my background and then my connections, you know, the, the bartenders that a lot of them still work with us now, um, it was just kind of it was a no-brainer that, yeah, the bar is going to be the centerpiece of this distillery. So let's talk about that then. So now you have you're gonna dist- you're distill you're gonna distill you're gonna do vodka and gin because that's what everybody does because that's the way you get started. You're gonna have this cocktail room. What I think is really interesting is how did you get all of that and then take it to retail? Because you can make great liquor and you can run a fun cocktail room, but now you have to get it out into stores. Yeah, I mean. Uh- the the low hanging fruit right away were the the connections I had with you know retail, um, so be, having sold you know the the bitter skits and developing some relationships there, and that probably um, made a huge difference for you. Absolutely, I mean there were three or four um, that basically like right away were like sign me up. Yeah, you know? um, and then you know by week two, I mean originally we you know we kind of. We knew what we were getting into, but at the same time, it was like, you know, you, you think that there's more hours in the day. And so John and I are like, you know, Dan's going to distill and then bartend at night and do some sales here and there. And like, <laughs> it was like, you know, I, you know, that didn't really happen. I basically became 
you know, a sales guy almost right away. Um, within, you know, the week two of, of our distributor having product, he and I were just pounding pavement, and, you know, getting doors slammed in our faces. Yep. Um, because at that point, were they, were the stores carrying a lot of local distilled products? Some of them were, um, you know, and sometimes the, um, the answer would occasionally be like, yeah, but local doesn't sell. And which at that time it was kind of cusping and, and you could feel that it was, was changing a little bit. Yeah. Um, there was certainly a good number of liquor stores that had really embraced the, the craft and local like spirits movement. Um, seeing that maybe it would mirror the beer industry a little bit. Yep. Um, cause we all know how the beer industry ended up. But, Boom. You know, just, yeah, it exploded. Um, I think it took a little bit more time and that probably has to do with the fact that there's a little bit more education with spirits because, you know, we know what vodka is, we know what whiskey is, but you know, what the heck is Akavit? Mm-hmm. And then you guys want to release these, you know, Italian-inspired bitter liqueurs like these different Amari and Fernet, things like that. Um, so there is a, a more of an educational component. And um, so, I mean, originally we had three products, and John and I were honestly just walking around with a, you know, roller bags of, of booze and just kind of cold-calling liquor stores. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that's that's how you start. When you look at the business and like what you did in the beginning, like what is your day like now? And I mean, aren't you like in tons of states and all these stores and Yeah, we're in twenty two states. Um so my day like my day now, it's you know, the past six weeks I've been home a lot because the kind of end of the year you don't really do a lot of like out of state market work. Yeah. Um you know, the October, November, December, everybody's just kind of ramping up for the holidays. They don't really want you in market yep. too much. Um, although we did, um, we did travel all the way through the week before Thanksgiving. Um, but you know, like today was basically kind of looking through our sales numbers and how we can, uh, kind of reconfigure what we do, um, what's working, what's not. So, I mean, there's been a lot of meetings for the past few weeks. I mean, I spent an hour today fixing furniture and then, um, <laughs> you know, a little time kind of hanging out with the, the distillery crew talking about some. Um, new products or, you know, potential new products, I should say, because we oftentimes create things that we don't ever release. We'll kind of do like a little test run. Yep. Um, so a lot of it's just kind of setting goals, um, figuring out how we're going to achieve those goals. Uh, I like to think that we've gotten a lot smarter, you know. Cause... Give me an example of that. And I can think of one, just that tour you gave me of the bottling line. Right, right. I mean, okay, and that actually is a good one. So like, you know, bottling line, the first you know, the first, I remember the first time we bottled, we had our, you know, our bartenders and servers were bottling with us. Yep. And it took a couple hours to put together one pallet. And like, this is great. And then, you know, a couple of days later, you see it go onto a truck and we're all high-fiving each other. And we're like, this is awesome. Um, but what happens is, how are you going to keep up? And do your servers and bartenders, once it starts getting busier and busier, do they actually want to come in and bottle by hand? At that point, everything was done completely by hand yep. or we're hand putting, you know, stickers on the bottles. And, you know, um, so that was actually, you know, that was kind of what we saw right around late 2016 as that was going to slow us down yep. moving into 2017, at which point we looked into automating the bottle line. Um, so part of it is still hands-on, but it goes a lot faster. Now. Yeah. Um, and we do have a, uh, a crew that, that is what they do. They, you know, um, a couple of them work in the front of the house too. But Tuesdays and Wednesdays, 
they bottle for about six hours a day. And you get to be a specialist with the equipment and the machines, and you understand their temperaments. and Exactly. I mean, because yeah. it's a skill. It's manufacturing, just like anything else. Yeah, it's a skill. And it's also like, you know, if we're bottling gin, that's going to be totally different than if we're bottling our sour cherry liqueur, which is going to be a little bit heavier yep. by weight. Um, and so you have to reconfigure the machine when you switch it over. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've gotten smarter about uh, a lot of what we're doing and, I guess, efficient. And Do you think you know how to do everything? Like one of the things in my business that was hard for me to grasp was that I didn't need to know how to make the fries necessarily, but I always felt like I did. Yeah, I don't even know how to turn the bottling line on. Okay. I mean, like, <laughs> like, I, mean I know that there's a green button. I assume that does it, but I've never used the bottling line um, that was, you know, that got delivered in 2017, and I was essentially on the road in, in other yeah. states living in hotels all year. Um, and so you, you you find the things that you're really good at. You focus on it. You can pretend like you know everything, but really you just have really wonderful people around you that do know how to do yeah. those things. So. so are there products that you've made that you stopped carrying because they just didn't sell? No, there was there was one. Just one? Just one. Um, what was it? Uh, it was our, we did a, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that we did a white whiskey, a corn whiskey <laughs> right when we opened, but we did that just for the cocktail room. We never, sure. we never sold it on, on uh, store shelves. There was nothing we ever, um, we ever took off the market. We did again, kind of getting on, like we got smarter. We stopped, um, bottling like the, our creme de fleur, which is one of our more popular liqueurs. We originally had that in a, uh, 375 milliliter bottle, so like a little half bottle. Yep. And now it's in a big bottle. And so um, we kind of realized that uh, you're getting more bang for your buck and people wanted more of it. At first, we're like, yeah, you're only going to use a little bit in a cocktail, so why would you want a big bottle of it? Right. Um, same thing with our absinthe this year. We, uh, we essentially stopped making the little bottles of that and then put it all in 750s, and um, it's very aggressively priced, and that was a really... Um, it was a very purposeful uh, endeavor there because, really, I was like, absinthe is never going to become like our number one selling product. Right, so right. Take a little bit of a loss. Out yeah, there. I can see that. Um, what are do you think uh, when you're moving forward and thinking about growth? Like you've moved into 22 states. Are there trends that like you think like oh this is do, are we to the point where we're saturated yet and we're going to see some distilleries maybe go out or? Well, we have. I mean, that's a sad thing. We saw, um, we've, we've seen a couple smaller ones in Minnesota. Um, I think the first one closed in 2016. Um, they were over in South Minneapolis. Um, but you are seeing some of the original players in the craft market. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Death Store actually is now no more. Um, oh, and, yeah. And so they were, I love that gin. Yeah. And so um, they uh, filed bankruptcy ago or so sad it's very sad i'm gonna um, stock up yeah, yeah i do like their gin it'll be worth something someday <laughs> um all right trends for cocktailing trends for the industry things that you're like oh we have to make that amaro seems like it's all over everything yeah um it is it's not like for us i mean we love it and it depends on the market i think we just got back from a kentucky launch and that was it was very popular it wasn't a, a place that we couldn't sell it into um it kind of depends on the market. Every, you know, what what they're drinking in Sioux Falls, South Dakota is going to be different than what they're drinking in Atlanta, Georgia. And so For sure. I don't know if there's any, like, the more we go out, I don't think there's any ubiquitous trends. I mean, 
just don't. And maybe that's because I'm becoming old and jaded. But I think there are, um, yeah, I think that there's the probably the newest trend, the one that, I, and I love it in in terms of like actual cocktailing, are these just people making really simple three ingredient cocktails that are just perfectly portioned. Yep. Um, and I saw that a lot in um, in Kentucky. And that was really, really fun to see because um, it was almost like this this wow moment for me where I'm like, why didn't I make that drink better? You know, like yeah. when, I, when I made it. And do you see like, um, I know Crooked Water Spirits has been a guest on the program and they did a bottled old fashioned. Do you right. think like those kind of cocktails bottled? Yeah. Um, definitely seen a lot more of the, the RTD, the, the ready to ready drink. Ready to drink, um, pre-mix. Yeah. Um, in that it makes perfect sense, honestly, because if you have people over, for example, it's it's easy to crack open a beer, pour a bottle of wine. But if you want an old fashioned, does every you know you want to take five minutes for every time you have to make an old fashioned yeah, or a batch no. of old fashions? And so it's like um, the the ready to drink thing is it's really cool um, for the the home user, especially. And honestly, I look at like if you're on an airplane, that would be yeah. incredible too. I, she has it in uh, like the Laura Hotel, like a little, um, probably two portion bottle. Is right. that three fifty milliliters? Yeah, and yeah, you get back to your room and you're like, "Yep, I don't want to go out. I'm too tired. I just, you know, maybe just flew in or something." And you, but you a little do something. Wanna, yeah, you do want a little, uh, little drink before you go to bed. That's it's kind of perfect. That's the deadly drink for me. An old fashioned. The drink that before I go to bed. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I go to bed with a drink, I know like that was a bad decision. And I do it often. It's not like it never happens. It happens a lot. You fall asleep really quickly. I don't know that you sleep that well. No, no. And then you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, it was the last one and there's the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of uh, part of part of our job to a point where, you know, I'm out quite a bit last night. I said to my girlfriend, I'm like, wow, we, we didn't drink tonight. <laughs> I was like, that's great. It's been a while. We're coming up on dry January, so, you know, there's that. Yeah, we don't do that in this industry. No, industry. we don't do that. All right. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, thank uh, you so much Dan, for having me. thanks for telling me the story of Tattersall, and of I wish you and John continued success. I cannot believe it's only been three years, three and a half. Feels like eight. I know. And uh, I hope in five more years we're sitting here recapping and you're in all 50 states. I love it. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Get a Little Caesars large, hot and ready bacon wrapped deep, deep dish pepperoni and bacon pizza wrapped in over three and a half feet of bacon for just 12 bucks at participating locations plus tax. Pizza, pizza. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. An F-16 pilot having hydraulic problems with his aircraft managed to parachute to safety as the plane smashed into a warehouse east of Los Angeles. Fire Captain Fernando Herrera. That pilot landed in the uh, March Air Force Base area, in the base itself. Amazingly, there were no serious injuries after the plane hit the building. Alabama executed a man last night for his role in killing four people after an argument over a pickup truck. Tennessee executed a man who killed his wife. Reporters couldn't see the execution, but AP correspondent Travis Lawler says... We could hear sounds, uh, including a singing that uh, uh, 
Mr. Johnson's attorney says was him singing a hymn. Answering a reporter's question, President Trump said he hopes the U.S. is not on a path to war with Iran. Mr. Trump has dismissed suggestions that any of his advisors are trying to push him into a conflict. I'm Rita Foley.